Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is episode 28. We are covering 25 movies from any given decade. Uh, this is us covering 2010 to 2019. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Matthew Waters. How are you this fine Sunday morning? Uh, I am good. Weather is happening outside, so if any of that does pick up faintly on mic, I apologise for weather. But yeah, Ben, you are hosting this podcast for the first time after doing such a great job with uh, Nothing Ever Ends. So congrats. And I think we're now going to try and alternate it a bit with, uh, you know, ones that were definitively picked by one person. They're going to host it. Yeah, and I definitively picked this one. If you couldn't tell from our wrestler episode last year, I <laughs> love this director for all his like warts and complications that he has. Yeah, like I, I adored this movie. It's like 2010 was kind of the year that I started going. Like, I'm going to go to the cinema more and more. Like 2010 is the year I saw all the Oscar nominations for the first time. It's kind of the first year that I felt like I had an ownership of my film taste, hmm. and I was so excited for this movie. And I'm so glad it stood up to my expectations, even if I think it has like waned a little bit in terms of my like favorite films of the decade. And my tastes have definitely changed a lot in the in the 10 years since I did it. But this is a, a very strong nostalgic favorite of mine i wrote a review of it for my student university paper which i did manage to find i will not bore us with any quotes from it just because it's incredibly wanky in the way that (laughs) i I, read my dissertation for you (laughs) i don't want to read 18 year old ben film criticism i read 18 oh not 18 20 year old man (laughs) dumbass opinions so i get a feeling probably presumably because this is a little bit of a psychological horror this doesn't stick in your mind as like a particularly great movie of 2010 i was was actually gonna say so obviously you chose this and this is one that like on first view i was like yeah i guess it's cool and then like whenever anyone would like sing its praises i was like meh whatever on a second viewing i was absolutely dead fucking wrong this is a beautiful (laughs) beautiful piece of filmmaking i don't remember the it was difficult to get all of our darlings on this list so i can't i don't know if i would have 100 percent put it on but like in a world where we can go back and uh, this is my viewing of it, I wouldn't have fought you whatsoever. And not that I fought you on this, but yeah, um, it definitely belongs on the list of 25. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not like the big Aronofsky fan that you are. I, I really like The Wrestler, as, as we discussed last time. But yeah, something about that dude I find a little bit off-putting, but I can't deny. I don't know if this is his best movie, but when he is I, on his shit, he is very good at filmmaking. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like I've got my four like firm favorites. It's it's Requiem. It's Fountain for all its weirdness. I adore that movie. The Wrestler and this, and mm-hmm. I like all of his movies to varying degrees. I can see a lot of the DNA of Mother in this movie, especially in terms of like kind of troubled artist manipulating a young kind of ingenue into into being his muse kind of thing is very strongly present in Mother, but a lot more complicated considering the fact that the young ingenue in that movie is literally having sex to the director. Yeah. But that is neither here nor there. I do think this movie has aged quite well in yes. terms of, like, Me Too recently. <laughs> yes, it has. So I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> Have you seen Perfect Blue? I've not seen Perfect Blue. I, I've seen all of the gifs and and clips <laughs> that people are comparing to shots from aronofsky movies like there is obviously the clip in the bathroom in perfect blue of uh the main character kind of screaming underwater and yeah, that, that is shot like... for shot recreated in requiem and and that was an obvious on purpose that uh perfect blue is an anime by uh, satoshi khan 
from 97 and Aronofsky bought the rights to it to remake it never did it but then put that scene into Requiem and then some people said that Black Swan is lifting liberally from Perfect Blue and this led me down a rabbit hole of basically a lot of his stuff was aped by western directors knowingly or otherwise like The Matrix, Cloud Atlas, The Fountain, Inception like the (laughs) It's it's crazy. I I yeah. I was only loosely aware of his work, and then looking into this movie and the controversies because the big one is the dancers and the costumes mm. and stuff. I I had not heard this before, and then I looked into it. And I was like, whoa! So I I just wanted to acknowledge that, and I, I yeah. desperately want to watch Perfect Blue later. But that's that's the thing is like I've always wanted to watch Perfect Blue for whatever reason. I never got around to watching it. It's he's kind of seen as like one of the like four or five great anime directors. Yeah. Really, it's like it's like Miyazaki, and then most people kind of put Con as like a mm. a number two. But yeah, God, <laughs> it's, it's been a lo- it's been a long time since I've watched this movie. Like, oh, yeah. I watched it. I remember watching this with an ex girlfriend of mine. We went to the cinema. I think it was opening night or second opening night. I I made sure we went to go see it, mm. and then I immediately got back to my halls of residence on campus. Was so floored by this movie that I illegally downloaded a copy got all my like housemates round and we sat and watched it for a second time after just getting home nice <laughs> like so i watched it twice the night it came out because i was like well i can't convince all these poor students to come pay for it i've paid for a cinema ticket i know i'm gonna get a blu-ray i'll probably go sit in cinema again i don't feel dirty and disgusting for pirating copy of this movie as long as i delete it afterwards <laughs> when we did uh, children of men in volume one I had seen it before, but I had to rent it. At the time, it wasn't on anything, so I rented it for the podcast. And I I loved it so much more that that time around that after we recorded, I rented it again to watch it with Sars. Because I was like, this is so fucking good. I should have just bought it. Maybe I did buy it, I don't know. But it's on stuff now. So you, you mentioned Mother. Is, is Noah not in the running? for? Because uh, obviously one film per director. Uh, Noah is Noah is a movie that I would basically meme to death if we covered Noah because I went to go see it with like a friend who is very massively into film and two other friends who are like on the borderline of being massively into film and basically (laughs) we left the cinema and just started chanting Noah and it's become a chant that we quite regularly just say when we're like out drinking and stuff like that is we'll just go like Noah Noah (laughs) it is wild that Aronofsky has only directed seven movies to me but that's the thing is, he keeps on trying to make superhero movies. He keeps on trying to do Batman or Wolverine, and they end up <laughs> distracting him from doing what I think is more interesting. I would have loved to see his Batman movie, but obviously Nolan got to make Batman instead. He was literally on the way to Japan to go film The Wolverine before uh, he ended up getting divorced from Rachel Weisz and wanted to stay with his son yeah. in New York and didn't want to kind of leave, leave there. So we missed out on that, which presumably would le- make us lo- lose out on Logan. Yep. If, if Aronofsky had got to do his Wolverine movie. yeah. But yeah, he, he takes his time. I follow him on Instagram. He just seems to be traveling the world, taking pictures of interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. It, he's an interesting man. But for this movie, it cost $13 million to produce on a budget, for a very tiny budget, really. Like, yeah. I think it's like twice as much as, as The Wrestler. Yeah. Like, how much does Natalie Portman cost? <laughs> I, at, at this point, I'm not sure, because obviously Natalie Portman is kind of, she's... Five years post-Star Wars, I don't think she's had that role that's kind of like... She, she's pre-Thor post-Star Wars, so she doesn't have any of the big budget stuff. Hmm. And I don't think she's doing a lot of interesting stuff, or a lot of the stuff she's doing is kind of not succeeding well. It's like V Vendetta and such. 
and also uh, not my words she's a woman in the industry so like she's yes. making less than she should be so. yes yes i mean after this she sadly doesn't have a role that kind of capitalizes her on on how good she is in this movie until jackie really which is mm. a damn shame and then yeah it does a box office of 330.4 million dollars mm. which... that's got to be one of the most profitable mo- movies we're going to cover <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Because of the fact, like, the, the, you see the behind-the-scenes stories of at one point during filming, Natalie Portman kind of dislocates or breaks a rib, and they don't have enough money for a medic on set. So she's like, "I need a medic. I'm, we're going to have a medic get rid of my trailer." So she comes back to set the next day. They've lost the trailer and have now got like a professional dance medic. Mm. But this obviously being a psychological horror, and Aronofsky being the guy that he is, is like, you have to do all the physical therapy you're going to get in character. Yeah, I was going to say, the scene with the physical therapy, like, is that real? <laughs> Almost? I, I, I assume it is. I assume it is literally he's got a camera and is like filming her do an actual physio. Because, yeah. yeah, she works on her rib and she works on her ankles and, yeah. <laughs> but Matthew. Yes. This movie was one of ten, well, the second year ever with ten nominations. What yes. were those ten movies that were nominated for yeah. the picture? So, because you're now hosting, I get to do this bit. Uh, you've covered the highest grossing movies of the year. Uh, but in terms of Oscars, uh, this is pretty important because this was actually nominated for one. As you say, 10 nominees. I have seen eight of them 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are Right. The King's Speech, Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. Against all odds, The King's Speech wins. That's the thing, though. It's, it's not. Against all odds, because it kind of becomes the overwhelming favourite, because it's, like, genetically engineered in a lab to yeah. make Oscar nominations. It's like, oh, it's a period <laughs> piece with a very good central performance of a man with a disability overcoming this yes. in a time of war. Yes. Um, it's, <laughs> it's obviously not. It's obviously not the best movie of that year. I think I have, like, six movies ahead of it in my own personal ballot. Yeah. Actually, no, probably more like seven or eight. It's... A really good slate for the Oscars, and I love so many of these movies. Yeah, Fighter is like the only one that I'm like, eh. I, I, like, I, I like the Fighter. I like the Fighter. I think literally all the ones I've seen, I would put ahead of The King's Speech, which mm. I have also seen. I never got round to Winter's Bone or The Kids Are All Right, but Winter's Bone um, is very good. Yeah, and I was I was still working in in that art cinema when uh, in this Oscar season, so we had posters for like all of these up way before I heard of like that was actually quite good for me like being aware of Oscar nominated things given I now like don't bother seeing most of them (laughs) but yeah that's a pretty strong slate I would say compared to some years I most people I think agree that you know while the King's Speech is very Oscar-y so you're not like stunned at one it's very clearly not the best of those movies um, and you'd happily give it to several of the others ahead of it including this one also, Natalie Portman wins Best Actress against Annette Bening, Nicole Kidman, Jennifer Lawrence, and Michelle Williams. Yeah, <laughs> I don't see how you would argue that one. Uh, no, it, that, that, it's it's a such a good performance, and it's mm. such a, a kind of like point change in her career, where obviously she's had a claim for several roles, but yes. she did kind of get painted with, like she does Leon. Yeah, she's very good for as kind of <laughs> a lot of stuff around that movie is. I, I can I can I just put this out as a PSA publicly? People that still like Leon, I have problems with you. <laughs> like I get that once upon a time it seemed cool as shit, but I watched it last year and I cannot, in all good conscience, knowing who made that movie, knowing what's in the movie, be like, 
yeah, this is good because it's creepy as shit. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's such a weird thing. So like, she goes on to do Star Wars, and there are stories from the Star Wars set of actors signing on to do Star Wars just so they could spend time with Natalie Portman, who at that point is most famous <laughs> for doing Leon and is a 16 year old girl in, in Phantom Menace yeah. <laughs> time frame. And yeah, and obviously she does kind of interesting roles, but probably like it's more stuff like Garden State. Mm-hmm. And you, she becomes this kind of like, oh, she's this quirky girl who does high-pitched voice. And this really is like, I it think plays th- on her kind of like the idea of who she is as an actress very mm-hmm. well. In terms of like, oh, she's this quiet, meek girl and we're yes. going to try and bring something more than that out of her. Yeah, and it feels like a very exaggerated version of that as well. I think I she said like, it was a huge interest for her to play it because it was challenging and she was stuck in a sort of never-ending cycle of yeah that kind of meek cute girl uh in these movies and like she is short and she is skinny and you know her most famous role to date or her two most famous roles are as like a literal child and as a kind of child empress kind of thing and you know that's probably not an area you want to be stuck in as an adult woman who has graduated from Harvard. Like, you probably have a desire to be taken seriously as an adult. But, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. And this this did a lot of good for her career. I would, well, obviously, she wins a fucking Oscar, but, you know. <laughs> I, I think I think it does more for her personal life because, obviously, she meets mm. her husband on the set of this movie. It mm. is, yeah, Benjamin Millipede, who is the uh, choreographer for an awful lot of this movie. Mm. She meets him on set... He is he's the dancer who in one scene when Tamar points and says, like, would you fuck her? He kind of sneers at the idea of doing it, <laughs> which, which which Natalie Portman says, well, obviously he did. So he's a very good actor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. yeah so, so, and so that's maybe... obviously uh, in Natalie's rap, too. He says she says my man dance, but he's not a ballerino. <laughs> Yeah, he twinkle his toes, but he give me good D though. <laughs> yeah, so she stuff. so she meets him. Uh, they have they've had two kids in the last ten years. So obviously that's kind of taken her away from acting an awful lot of this decade, and it's why like she's got the two Thor movies that she did, and Jackie yeah. as kind of most of her mainstream film appearances. Mm. Sadly, but she still there is that respect on her name, like no matter what, and no matter how infrequently she works, like she is a heavyweight of both actual acting and just as a celebrity, she is someone that, like, mm. yeah, and encourages and, and it's And it's why, like, when she comes back to do something a bit more strange, like Annihilation, you kind of get like, ooh, Natalie mm. Portman's coming back to do that stuff that I really like. Yeah. And then she uh, follows up Lucy in the Sky, which is... <laughs> I should say, opening weekend, it made, in the UK, the equivalent of $4.4 million of an eventual 26. Quite high for a film in the where's UK. It, where's it coming? Is it number one? Uh, it debuts behind King's Speech in its third uh, week. It is the highest debuting new movie, just ahead of Green Hornet in its second week. Uh, above The Dilemma, above the fifth week of Gulliver's Travels, third Jesus. week of 127 Hours, fifth week of Little Fockers, first week of Morning Glory, a film inexplicably I saw in the cinema, and I really don't remember how that happened. Uh, the tenth week of Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 1. And the debut of Ned's. King's Speech was like the one movie that we managed to get everyone in our university group to go see in the cinema together at that point in time. It was like, we did Harry Potter, I think. And then the only Oscar movie that all of us were like, let's go to the cinema to see this was King's Speech. (laughs) 
I, saw, I, I literally I saw King's Speech with my mum. That's like, that's what kind of movie that is. <laughs> I think we just had a lot of history students in our group. Mm, okay. And like a kind of weirdly like leftist jingoism for royalty. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't. I don't I, it's that. It's that weird thing where I think like a lot of people in that group now would kind of go like, "Oh no, do I really get really excited to see a movie about the royal family?" <laughs> Just based on like the slow left drift that an awful lot of people have kind of. Well, I mean, the Crown is pretty fucking popular. So. <laughs> Crown is pretty good. It's one okay. of the Netflix shows that I like. Yeah, no, that's solid. Okay. okay. It's made on an episodic basis. Okay. I'm not. I'm not dragging you. I haven't seen it. I'm just saying the crown is pretty fucking popular. Right, but we have dallied on too long. What is this movie about? This movie is about Nina, played by Natalie Portman, who is a ballet dancer. Yes. Who has kind of been passed over multiple different seasons. Like it seems like she has got the technical know-how, but mm-hmm. she is very, very frequently kind of like put into uh, the. I don't know how you'd refer to it in ballet, like the chorus or. Uh, they, they call. When she snaps at her mother, she says, "You never got out of the core, as in yes. like a Marine Corps." And it's yeah. just the it's the non-solo dancers. It's the yeah. Yeah, and yeah. she's and she she's been like she says to her mother in this like opening scene that Tamar has promised to put give her more solos this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get this moment where her mother, who is incredibly overbearing, played by Barbara Hershey. Mm. Gives her a grapefruit and egg, which is the exact meal that they are eating in the diet in Rock for a Dream. There's a nice ah, little back okay. to that. But yeah, she's <laughs> this is why we need get... you doing this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, she's going to get to dance more this season. Yes. And that's that's after she's had this dream sequence, which which opens the movie. And like, right from the jump, the cat. I feel Aronofsky shoots most of his movies this way, but like, it really suits this where. The camera feels really predatory towards her. Like it, mm. it, it approaches her from behind. It's in a sort of a panicked flutter, very close. And because of the nature of ballet, with like so much, so many moving parts, as it were, it just, it just makes it feel so like panicky and anxiety-inducing. And like obviously, the entire plot of the movie is like I would I would barely call it a loose metaphor for the plot of the ballet that they are performing. Oh yeah, it, it, <laughs> but Darren it's Aronofsky good, but... is, or if Darren Aronofsky is one thing, it is not subtle. Like this movie is like a ton of bricks. There is so much visual flair, but you can tell exactly what everything's going on. Like even a, even if you don't know what the plot of Swan Lake is, you're sat there going, "Well, they're just doing Swan Lake, aren't they?" This is yeah. like a darkened metaphor for Swan Lake, yeah. right down to the fact that Clint Mansell's score for this movie is literally Swan Lake in mm. reverse and kind of distorted and chopped around a little bit. Yeah. And like, just you... just because it's a layup doesn't mean like you can't execute it really well, and he does. So I'm not I'm not trying to dunk on him for oh, no, like, yeah. the lightness of his metaphor. But yeah, it, it's just what you watch this movie and you go like, yeah, no, you're not being subtle at all here. My memory of there was a lot of buzz in the UK before this came out because you know it, it comes out in early December in the US, uh, sort of late January in the UK. They brought it forward by a month because of the anticipation. Everyone was like really geared up to see this, and I remember the reputation for this was it being sort of psychological horror ballet movie also two hot girls have sex and everyone that, that, was like that, <laughs> that is the downside to the legacy of this movie is yeah. it is i think i think i looked at the list and it's like every single movie that i brought in with lgbt themes is directed by a straight man sadly <laughs> oh ben yeah you failed yourself i i have failed myself but it's i 
I do think that a reason why is that a lot of horror people did go see. I don't think you get this gross without tapping into an outside the Oscar buzz mm. crowd. Yeah. And I do think a lot of horror people in January where you kind of get a cast off horror movie uh, like last year there was like escape room and stuff like that. Like there's a there's a crowd who are very eagerly anticipating this kind of release. Yeah, you've been stuck with your with your relatives over Christmas. Here's here's some dark horror to give you some catharsis. I, I do think it's interesting. It's like one of seven horror movies that's ever been nominated for an Oscar. Interesting. And and obviously it gets through on the strength of its lead actress. I also think it gets through on the fact that they kind of have to have ten nominations on the slate. Like you could probably see like something like Hereditary might have just snuck in, just on the strength of. of I, I don't know. Ar- Aronofsky doing a movie about ballet seems like something that would get nominated for an Oscar, no matter how good it was. <laughs> we shall. We we well, we'll never know. Sadly, <laughs> we'll never the Oscars know. the Oscars changed the rule after this because Winter's Bone got in, and everyone like, Who, "What the fuck is Winter's Bone? No one's heard of this movie. <laughs> it made no money. Get this yeah. away." <laughs> But here's Jennifer Lawrence. Have fun, everyone. But that's the thing. It's like she, it, Jennifer Lawrence blows up and they're kind of like, oh, well, I guess we did find her early. Yeah. But yeah. yes, so Nina gets the train or the subway to, to the ballet where mm. we get the first kind of inklings of, of what's going on in this movie where she sees someone in another carriage kind of acting very similar to her. Yes. But I, what I'd like is the costume design for this movie. Not necessarily the ballet stuff, but just... The way that Portman is dressed in like every single one of the first like forty percent or first half of this movie, always with... wearing white or pink, yeah. And, and her bedroom is so stunted, like full of stuffed animals. It is still, it is like a preteen girl's bedroom and everything. Yeah. And like the the relationship with the mother, like it isn't immediately creepy, but they do start to layer that element when it's like they hug. And her mother does that kind of soap opera, I have a dark secret look over her shoulder. And then the smash cut to looking in the window and the subway and stuff. Like it, They are right from the jump putting this kind of sinister undertone to it. And then, yeah, obviously, like, she is seeing Lily slash herself <laughs> in the other carriage. And, and yeah, good yeah. stuff. It is good. I mean, I, I love the ruffles on her, on mm-hmm. her like sweatshirt. It's just so big, and it's like. I mean, I guess it's winter in New York at this point, but yes. she's uh, a ballet dancer. Did you know? <laughs> she, she is a ballet dancer. Although some ballet dancers do not like this movie. I am aware. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we cut to the inside of the of the kind of changing rooms in the ballet where they are discussing Beth, who is played by Winona Ryder, mm. and how uh, she's like they. It's all about how the ballet that they're in is seen as kind of old and stuffy and they keep on putting this person who is past her prime in the lead role and no one's coming anymore because it's the exact same thing over and over again. Yeah. And how ballet is stale at the best of times, even though it's seen as a high art. No one's got money. This movie is made post-recession. and yeah. I don't think it's a big theme, but I do think it is like there is less money going around to come see the ballet. And so if you are not the number one ballet in New York, then... No one is going to be coming to see yeah. see you unless you're doing something. You need you need to be the hottest ticket in town, or or mm. you might as well not bother. And you mentioned the the high art thing. I I think it's fascinating that this has obviously got so much DNA in common with the wrestler, and that they it obviously started out as an element of the wrestler as as he was going to be dating a ballerina, mm-hmm. but like wrestling is like low art, and ballet is the highest art, and they are both. It's, it's kind of the same story. Like, it basically has the same ending. Um, oh, yeah. That's, that's, like, I watched this, and I was like, it, he has done the same thing twice. I yeah. think 
both of them have got obviously different themes and different ideas behind them but structurally they are very closely tied together right down to like the wrestler has a similar kind of body horror like theme in terms of like the way that he inflicts the balance on himself but it is very much like you could i would love to see someone do like a back-to-back screening of these two Mm. that you watch them and kind of go like oh no they are how how artists push themselves to this physical limit it's obviously something that aronofsky is very interested in is the idea of the artist putting everything into their work and perfectionism and and all such we will of course have another film coming up in this volume that is following a very similar idea of an artist attempting to achieve that perfection and yeah I, i think the different themes largely come down to their gender and their age is where the differences are coming in, but yeah, you have you have someone at the end of their career and someone at the start of their career. Yeah, and you know the, the fatherhood and and the and the masculinity versus you know she is a woman who is not a prisoner of her mother, but you know and all of that. But yeah, that that core idea of trying to achieve that perfection and more of the like the inner workings type stuff, pulling the curtain back when you see there's so many extreme close ups. And inten- of feet, of of intense stretching, of she is like ripping a ballet shoe apart to modify it, and I guess, I, I, I guess it's yeah. to make it fit as snugly as possible. That, yeah, I love that sequence. It's like you can't just have a store bought shoe; you have to yeah. like rip the sole out, have it be more comfortable, more flexible, so that you can do your fluettes and everything like that. Yeah. And like scuffing up the bottom, like you get fancy shoes and they are slick as shit, and you cannot walk on anything in them, and you have to like properly scuff them up to make them walkable. It's, it's like. Ballet is a huge fucking deal. You would think there would be specialist suppliers that like are making actual practical ballet shoes, but maybe part of this is, you know, she doesn't live in the nicest apartment in New York. She maybe she can't afford proper mm. ballet shoes, so she I buys mean, cheap ones she, and modifies them. Yeah, she's twenty eight and lives with her mother. Mm. It's. I do think there is like a specter of recession. Yes. Kind of over the movie, but I think that's a lot of American art at this point in time probably does have that yeah. um, over the top of it. I just love how process heavy a lot of this stuff is. Yeah. Like, like ballet dancers can say, like, I don't think this accurately represents our world, and that is presumably one hundred percent accurate. I presume there is more of a like uh, a fraternity or sorority kind of like mentality, and everyone supported each other and building each other up, as opposed to this, where it's right. like. I hate you because you got the part I wanted. And yeah, that that feels very like middle aged man making story about women, and therefore it's all catty and high schooly. Um, so yeah, I don't doubt that like it is much more of a family atmosphere and one of support because I mean they all have to go through this and like they are all in this production. I th- again, I I am not a ballet dancer. Shockingly, <laughs> I do have dancers' feet, but the the effort to show this is really fucking hard mm. and like treating it like a kind of like a sports movie where like you see these american football movies and and these baseball movies and all that where it's like oh the toll it's taking on their body and it's like oh wow such male pain and to do that but with ballet like that's the thing this story works because you can substitute ballet dancer for anything and it works still like it's we can all relate to that core struggle of like i want this so badly and 
it's crushing to not get it and it is such a physical toll on me and it's like the biggest thing in my life and yeah yeah I, I think, I, and it's 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 the stuff that aronofsky is interested in he is interested in what it means to be an artist and i will contort your world to fit into the idea of this struggling artist trying striving for perfection yeah. to put in potentially like artificial roadblocks but yeah. he so obviously is interested in perfection as yeah. and i i think the cattiness aspect it serves her story because she she has no fucking friends he's not necessarily trying to tell the story of this is the world of ballet he's trying to tell the story of this character who has probably multiple social disorders <laughs> including... not, not, to di- not to diagnose someone but yeah i mean and her mother also like yes it's it's a it's a not great living situation for either of them but yeah so after she's done the shoes we get our first kind of like big show of the entire core of the ballet and everyone's doing stretches and dance moves and then vincent cassell's tamar walks into the room and i mean i get like Tomar is probably Aronofsky. I don't think yeah. he is. <laughs> I don't think he is capable of not putting himself into this kind of role. I think an awful lot of his ideas of art and and whatnot are kind of like voiced for this character, who is obviously incredibly shitty. And mm. I do like that one of the IMDb trivia facts this movie is like, well, Tomar's the actual villain. And it's like, well, no shit, Tomar's <laughs> the actual villain. It's the least subtle thing in the world. Yeah. Like him, him like leering silently over them. And mm-hmm. there's this there's this moment where they all kind of adjust their clothes, and some of yeah. them like take clothes off. And I was like, how, how do you read that little moment? Like, I think it's like they know that he is someone who likes the female form, whether or not they are aware of mm-hmm. like what he does with Beth. I think there is like everyone's aware of sexual favors, yeah, that are being given. But I, and I think they're like, I'm not willing to do that, but I am willing to be more visually pleasing yes. for him for this role. Because it's like again, taking like a sweatshirt tied around shoulders or a waist off. It's like like ruffling a skirt. Like, I don't know. But it was just this weird little half moment. And then it's like, and now continue. And then he's like walking around, tapping them on the shoulder without telling them what that means. And just... Really I, I like just... I like the smiles that all the mm. people get tapped on the shoulder do, and like obviously the movie's going to subvert this and be like anyone who was tapped on the shoulder, fuck off. Yeah, like that, that's what you expect is if you're touched, you're in, and and it's the exact opposite. And like you know him just sort of prowling around them, <laughs> just you know this carnal me- like metaphor of of this man like preying on them and everything, and like explaining the big story to them as he does it and. Yeah we're, yeah, we're doing a more visceral version of Swan Lake. Is like yes. again, it's it's a trope that's being done. It's like let's take something that is nice and pure and like make it edgy. Yeah, and it feels <laughs> almost like a parody at this point. We also get Mila Kunis's Lily walking through the room late. Mm-hmm. I love the tattoo on her back, and obviously again, yeah. it's one of those things where like the theme is not subtle. It's like she's got a set of black wings on her back. <laughs> yes, yes, her is the complete antithesis of Nina. Again, not subtle. Like she dresses all in black. She is bubbly and carefree, and a little sex pot, and like you know, completely uninhibited and everything. Like it, it's 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 in no way subtle, but it, no. it works. <laughs> and I think Mila Kunis is good in the role as well. She is. Obviously, she's, really she's not. She's not Oscar nomination worthy. I don't think. No. But I mean, I she's I think... not in it enough. Like for for all of the like buzz about 
how it's about these two getting off with each other or whatever before anyone actually saw it. It's kind of the Natalie Portman show featuring a couple of other people. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, what, Winona Ryder's got four minutes total screen yeah. time in the movie. It's it's crazy how much this movie rests on on Portman's shoulders. Mm. And it's not to say that, like, the movie doesn't do a lot of visual stuff, where, like, obviously when Portman's dancing, they'll cut to the two of them and make it seem like they're looking at each other and kind of build the tension up in that way. But in terms of, like, actual face-on-screen time of Mila Kunis... Yeah acting it's minimal <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah uh but we get our introduction to beth as well after this who storms out of her dressing room after smashing some stuff mm. uh, obviously something she's been given some bad news i assume yes <laughs> uh, and and then we get our first like uh, like not hint that something's not quite right with nina but that she's She's trying to do something that isn't correct because she walks into the dressing room and steals the lipstick. And... Yeah, she like sits in her chair and like has the little fancy about having her life, and then she steals all of her stuff. Yeah, so obviously, like, so it seems that like Beth's not being allowed to audition for the lead role in this, and is not very happy. So we get our actual like all the actresses auditioning for the White Swan, or the or the lead in Swan Lake because you have to play both the White Swan and the Black Swan, and Tamar whispers in. Nina's ear and it's just like if you were if we were just auditioning for White Swan you would have it because she is this poised perfect dancer who is technically perfect in every single way but she is completely incapable of losing that structured perfection that would enable her to play the Black Swan and I do think it's one of those interesting things like that the movie is able to show you the differences between the two dancers and when she's being good and when she's being not as interesting. And and more of, like, his kind of incredibly uh, forward... Like, you know, just, like, getting right up next to her and whispering in her ear that, like, you know, you would have it if, if this were the only role, but it's not. And, like, you know, I get it. I get what he's saying. Like, And these are, this is probably the least offensive of his behaviours, but, yeah, it's just more of that and, like... That's the thing is like there's obviously a sensualness to dancing yeah. and a, a physical proximity that's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, right down to the fact that obviously Portman fell in love with the choreographer for this movie. There is, <laughs> there is obviously something there that kind of leads to these kind of things, yeah. or can lead to these kind of things. Because obviously, like I knew an awful lot of dancers at university, and it's not like they were all sleeping with every single person that they were dancing with. Yeah. Like, they just like dancing. And... Yeah. No, I, th- I think it's, like, like drama. Like, or, or, or just, yeah. Like, if you're with the same class and you're putting on all these different pieces, like, you're all probably at some point going to have to kiss each other. And it's just sort of like, this is a part of it. And it's kind of, you have to just deal, kind of. Yeah. And, but it's and... probably, and, like, occasionally people probably will get together. But for the most part, like doing that professionally makes you not want to do it recreationally. Yeah. And, and but that's the thing is and it's the it's the line that Tomar crosses mm-hmm. is that obviously he doesn't have that boundary. Yeah. Like maybe he is viewing this as like oh this is dance it's sensual like we do this because this is what dance is. I think it's just that typical trope of the male instructor in in movies just being like I don't care what it takes, I will get the best thing out of you. And, like, his argument that, like, I will help you become, like, perfect, but, like, the rest of society being like, ah, but the various things you've done that are abuse, <laughs> not okay. So maybe we shouldn't strive for this perfection. <laughs> yeah, and and 
Lily walking in while she's attempting the the, the multiple spit, you know. <laughs> This idea that she potentially does it on purpose, that she, like, slams the door as she's trying to concentrate and that m- makes her, like, stumble. But she's probably completely innocent. Like, and that's the thing. Like, this is all through Nina's point of view. So we see Lily as probably a more antagonistic character than she actually is. Like, maybe she just did just walk in and she didn't know. But it's sort of framed in a way where it's like she sees what she's doing and then she slams the door to throw her off. Yeah, I mean, I love the way that the the spins are done with that kind of like the camera getting all distorted and then she stops and all she sees is like Tamar mm. and then you get like a shot of, like the clear shots are, are few and far between this. Like uh, we haven't mentioned him yet, but Matthew Liebertich did this movie. It's one of the late, like he's kind of, he missed out on doing The Wrestler, mm. but he seems to have picked up the visual palette of that movie very well, Yeah, uh, even though he didn't like DP that movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so... Nina's thrown off, she kind of collapses. Tamar doesn't want to see her do the dance again. And Nina sees this as like this just huge, re- huge this huge rejection. She runs off to the bathroom and like, I don't want to say she's got bulimia, but it's definitely like something about her and like the, the weight loss and food is a, is a yep. more subtle undercurrent. When she rejects the cake in a minute as well. And I also like this as a juxtaposition, you know, when she fails this, she runs to the toilets and vomits. And in a minute, she's going to run to the toilets and like jubilantly cry and Mm. call her mother. And it's just sort of that duality of it. But we get like, the movie starts to transition. Like we've had kind of like hardcore ballet movie now, but we start to transition more into the the more psychological horror and body horror stuff because on her walk home (laughs) with her, with her terrible flip phone, (laughs) <laughs> which I'm pretty sure they didn't ever used to come up like full screen and be like Mom. no no not not any of the ones I've I was watching something the other day where they they were doing like a flashback scene and it was like one of these really old Nokia type phones with the tiny little antenna on it um and they were texting and like the conversation was treated like it is with modern iPhones where like the whole thing is happening in almost real time. It's like, no, 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 no. You'd be waiting like 30 seconds for yours to send a couple of and minutes for theirs to come through. You get the screen of like one text message and not it scrolling through, but it's like the visual language of phones has changed so much that yeah. we can't actually show text and phone calls in the same way. Like yeah. I'm sure like, cause this is 2010. So iPhones are like just starting to come about and they're having to change things to, visually convey what's happening on the screen easily and efficiently. Yeah, so it's this giant full-screen pink text. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so as she's walking, there's someone walking the opposite direction who is moving and acting exactly like her. Yeah. And as they go past, oh my god, it's Natalie Portman's face. (laughs) Yeah, evil sexy Natalie Portman. (laughs) The very clear inspiration of uh, Dostoevsky's The Double you know this fear of doppelgangers like i i think that's how this movie even came about is he was trying to write a movie called the understudy which i saw a movie called the understudy that has a lot in common with this and i do wonder if it was like the cast off version of it when he gave up on it but like yeah about understudies and and doppelgangers and and all that and then he saw swan lake and he just smushed the two together but yeah, this the the evil Nina that will haunt her throughout is, yeah, it's creepy. Like, and and at first it's just sort of like, okay, she is a ballerina in New York City at night, and like this is uncomfortable as there's a person approaching her. But then it takes that like very literal dark turn. Yeah, creepy. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, and then obviously the body horror starts where she's she gets home and basically bursts into tears and is like, I need to be better, and just starts practicing until she splits her toenail. <sighs> toenail stuff, man. Not not <laughs> there for that's, it. I think that's the most effective thing about the movie is like an awful lot of the body horror in like the first hour of the movie is all related to toenails and fingernails mm-hmm. because like especially toenails are something that you do damage while dancing because yeah. tightness on the feet and you're doing an awful lot of kind of like standing on your toes yeah but then uh, also the you know they planted the seed immediately this this little like rash or scratch she has on her shoulder blade and again because we see this through her eyes it's kind of a oh where did this come from that's weird and then, yeah, like, her mother starts to... It's subtle at first, and then it's just pointed, is that, like, it's very clear she has a nervous tick of some kind where she scratches herself, either subconsciously or when she's sleeping or both, and she has done herself some damage before. You know, I don't want to... I mean, it kind of is self-harm. I don't I don't want to call it that, but it, it kind of is. Yeah, the stuff with the nails as well, like, and just the obsessive trimming of them, it's like... Yeah, yeah, I love. I, I love, there's like the idea that later on in the movie, when the when her mother sees the scratches like mm-hmm. fully up close, and she's kind of like, oh, you know what our agreement is? Like, you can only grow your nails out if you if you don't scratch, because yeah. she has got like quite long fingernails at that point in the movie, and yeah. it really brings home that kind of like there is a lack of consent here in the way that the mother treats her, but also it really does help that like body horror i'm not sure what's going on mm. the, the mother is such an interesting character yeah. throughout because it's like it almost feels like she's negging her yeah kind in of. some ways she doesn't believe she can get this role and she's mm. like preparing her for being in the core or being a background feature or whatever and yeah as you say it, it's almost like an abusive relationship between a man and a woman but like it, it's it's the mother and like when she makes her the cake, and then she's like, no, it's terrible, I'll throw it away. And and just these kind of, like, subtle, manipulative behaviours. And But then I also like that, like, early on it seems like, okay, Nina's completely innocent and normal and great, and her mother is a little bit creepy, but as we go on, it starts to sort of flip, and it's like, okay, maybe the mother isn't as bad as she seems, and mm. Nina has actually got some genuine problems, and yeah, we're the just movie not is... seeing them framed that way. Yeah, the movie is, like, not hiding things from us, but it's just we haven't seen potentially Nina at her worst. Like, maybe there's a reason that she is 28 and living with her mother. Exactly, yeah. Obviously, her mother is aware of these tics, and... and exactly, like, it, it, it starts off as a kind of, like, you're being controlling and you're being, like, you know, that lack of consent, but then later on it becomes very, like, this is what I need to do to protect... Like, genuinely, this is what is medically wise for you. Is that I, I like cover your hands in mitts and everything. I like that the conversation with the mother is Nina kind of going, like, I'm going to tell him that I completed the dance because she never got to complete mm. the, the Black Swan dance during the audition. And she's gone home to practice it and has broken her toenail. And mother's like, don't lie. Don't do not do that. And then the first thing she does after she's kind of, as much as she can approximate sexing herself up is, like she puts on best lipstick and she wears slightly fewer layers is her idea of like making herself look sexy mm-hmm. and and goes to Tamar the next morning and it's like, I completed the role, I think I should have another shot at the part and then Tamar just shuts it down immediately it's just like, I've given it to Veronica yeah. and she is so incapable of like having a backbone and fighting for herself that she just bursts into tears and like wants to leave. And Tamar's like, no, 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 this is a test. Like, mm-hmm. 
I want you to fight for this role. Be sexy. And uh, this is where we start to get, like, the proper him being a creep. Yeah. Well, he comments on how she's all dolled up and, like... I, I think that slamming the door shut as she tries to leave in a sort of backstage setting, that has very different connotations these days given some of the stories that have come out. And, you know, he will then literally assault her, you know, kissing her against her will and her biting him to make him stop is what makes him think, oh, maybe you can be the black swan. <laughs> it's you've, all just you've got so... some edge to you. Yeah. Oh, and he... He says how I've never seen you lose yourself, and she says how she wants to be perfect, and like that I want to be perfect is kind of that's the one sentence summary of the movie in some ways, <laughs> like that that she is so obsessed with that, and like when you look at some of the other things going on with her, that like maybe she does have obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't know. I am not a psychologist, but she's trying so hard for every tiny little thing to be just right that she's losing the greater meaning or whatever that i mean like that that kiss is that first kind of inkling of i know it's obviously the movie doesn't come out and out and go like cassell is a bad person (laughs) i don't think the movie i I don't think the movie needs to condemn him it just kind of very matter-of-factly states a lot of the stuff that he does Mm. and the ways in which he manipulates nina into kind of going along with it and it again, like all the news coming out recently, because like we obviously as fans of comic books um, are seeing an awful lot of accusations thrown at older men for bringing in younger people and kind of throwing them away afterwards. And this movie just ma- very matter of factly has that yeah. in. And for whatever reason, it just kind of hit home that like a world in which I'm immersed in having these conversations when 10 years ago there is this old creative person who has thrown away someone else who he was having sex with in favour of the younger new ingenue mm-hmm. like it just felt like oh we're still having these conversations 10 years later or are these conversations only just now happening and yeah men's obsession with uh, female youth is is troubling <laughs> yeah. yeah but I do I do love this scene afterwards where Nina's sat on the floor, just incredibly despondent. She knows, or she thinks she hasn't got the role, and she's just staring at Veronica, because, like, Veronica is the new person who maybe it ought to be. Mm-hmm. Like, she's got the she's got the lead in the Swan Lake, and and Veronica's got this disdainful, like, why are you looking at me, freak? Like, stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels very high school. Yeah, um, and then right up to, like, oh, they posted the cast sheet, and, like, <laughs> oh, congrats, you got it, and then what the fuck, kind of thing, because she doesn't. Yeah. Again, it's, like, potentially all of this tension is being created by her inadvertently i mean you know there is still that sort of bitchy factor where the other dancers like don't want to talk to her and stuff but yeah it's it's good and then obviously after she's cried on the phone i i love her. he picked me is just such a <laughs> yeah. she completely kills that and obviously you've got clint mansell's kind of like distorted swan lake playing in the background of all of this yeah and then presumably veronica or maybe it's not even real um whore written in lipstick on the on the mirror outside as well and then the the cake as i said that her mother has made her this place really over the top cake i like that she's gone to she's gone out after the phone call bought this ridiculous cake oh it's strawberries and vanilla or whatever it is i was like jesus christ how much did this cake cost you yeah exactly and she's like again like potentially the eating disorder don't know but she's just kind of like i don't know if i feel like eating any of it right now and then she's like fine i'll fucking throw it away and it's just that kind of you know when men flip out 
like that mm. as a as a sort of tactic to make you consent or whatever. But like, yeah, yeah and then she's like, mm-hmm, really good. Do you um, reckon there's like a flat wage for a ballet dancer, or do they actually get a pay increase if they get uh, a higher role in the ballet? I'm, <laughs> I assume the, the the big sexy roles pay more. I'm just I'm just intrigued whether or not it's like a flat wage, and then there's like a promise on top, like if you get a lead role, you will get a bonus or whatever. I don't know. I I, I cannot say as a, as a non-expert <laughs> in the the contracts of ballet. Damn it! After uh, you were so useful on a wrestler episode. I know. I know. Sorry, everyone. Also, we see her mother's terrible paintings for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and this felt like a Doctor Who episode. I can't remember what episode it is, but there's the episode of Doctor Who where like the painting comes to life. <laughs> and it's like, I I, under, I understand why it's there. It's that like thematic like old doubling and the mother's obsession with her daughter and yeah. runs the movie. But I do think it's one of those like it's the worst like quote unquote scare is the one where she runs into the room and like they're all like they're leering all at her. Moving, yeah. And like is she just bad at painting? Or is this supposed to be some kind of hint that she kind of has a cause you see I feel I've seen this as a trope where like oh god I can't remember what it is. It's like someone is done this painting and and then they think it looks beautiful and then the other person is like that's really mean why would you do that and then the actual painting looks like horrific i think it might be like an episode of house or something like that but like yeah a potential like hallmark that maybe she has some kind of disorder that is undiagnosed and like yeah but the the bigger thing of just like obsessively painting her own daughter she was a ballet dancer her daughter is a ballet dancer like she helps with her diet she helps with everything you know like it's very gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That last thing is, like, as flawed and obviously unwell Nina is in certain ways, it is only exacerbated by the kind of two parental figures in her life, as fucked up as that is, are, like, hmm. Tomar and her mother. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I love that, like, we... we we kind of reach this point in the movie where the movie's kind of like going like, right, we're going to do a little bit in ballet school, a little bit at home, and kind of like juxtaposing these two. But we also get Nina being good at White Swan and bad at Black Swan, and then we get to see Lily dance. And yes. there is this kind of like free-flowingness to her where she like is thrown across the room and runs into someone, but it seems so effortless and and yeah. joyful. Yeah, like all like, like there is a magnetism to her. Everyone yes. is, is drawn to watch her. The big gala event where she's shown off to the the wealthy elite and Tomar announcing Beth's retirement, oh. but, like so dickish and calling her his little princess and all of that. Oh, like, and, and... like presumably she has not made this announcement personally. Like this is him putting that on her. Yeah, yeah. And then she, I mean, what, what's she gonna do? Be like, I'm not retired. <laughs> like. <laughs> That's the thing, it's like she is, and Winona Ryder is very good for her reduced screen time. This is in that kind of period in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, but it, last thing is, like, cause obviously, I mean, everyone keeps on bringing up the fact that, like, how fucked up is it that we cancelled Winona Ryder for so long? Yeah, for, uh, shoplifting. She, for shoplifting. And then there are multiple. There abuses. are rapists working in the industry right now. Like, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, she's done a few things in between now and then, like, she was in Escada Darkly, she was in Star Trek, but mm. I, I think the thematic stuff in this movie... That she is has kind of, been pushed aside for the younger actress, kind of thing. Yeah, I think people spoke about her role a lot more than they did other stuff, but obviously she is successfully transitioned to TV at this point, it takes another six years for her to get that, but... Mm-hmm. 
it's nice that we have Winona Ryder in both Stranger Things and the plot against America as like because like she was America's sweetheart for yeah that like five ten year period in the nineties before everything kind of imploded and the Hollywood machine kind of ate her up and chewed her out. Women must be punished. Yeah. Yes. But again, it, it, for as small as the role is, she is incredibly memorable. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is like her big showcase moment is her look, kind look of... Look what I can still do. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. her doing the drunk acting and wandering off when Tomar is kind of like fawning all over Nina. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we're, we're skipping over like Nina's ripping her fingernail or ripping the, the skin from her fingernail in she, the bathroom. Yeah, she has a tiny cut on her finger that like for his entire speech she can't help but stare at it and then she runs off to the bathroom and like is trying to scrub it and then she hallucinates that she's pulled the skin off and this yeah this desire to be perfect that a tiny cut has ruined her like pristine image and she's wearing this like gorgeous fucking white dress that is like where did you get this like not to again potentially like cast her as poor but like yeah it's she's at this like huge fancy gala and all she can look at is this tiny cut on her finger yeah, and then it's like it's the scene afterwards where Beth and Nina have this confrontation mm-hmm. in the hallway, and and Beth is very not subtle and is just kind of like, "Did you blow him? <laughs> what did you do to get this role?" And then Tomar comes out and she's immediately falling all over him. And it's like, "I'm coming round afterwards. I don't care what you say. Yeah. I will. I will do whatever it needs to have a role in this." And sort of like go away almost, and yeah. him asking her. You know, he, he, he asks Nina if she's a virgin, asks if she likes having sex, and, like, tells her to go home and masturbate, basically. I do like that the movie has these kind of, like, three three views on sexualities. You've got Nina as this very repressed 28-year-old who's never masturbated, and if she'd had sex, it's that kind of, like, close your eyes and think of France. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> kind of idea behind it. You've got Beth, who is obviously fully a point of like I need to do whatever I can to stay relevant like weaponizing it yeah. yeah and then you've got Lily who is like oh I'll just take my underwear off in a in this bathroom and put them in a put them in a handbag yeah. kind yeah. of idea behind it like th- these views on female sexuality and whether or not you want to get into the problematic side of the fact that this movie has three male script writers uh, when having story by credit as well and and then key scenes with a man groping a woman a woman quite for Hollywood graphically masturbating and then again for Hollywood a quite explicit woman on woman scene yeah uh, yeah mm. <laughs> but yeah uh, yeah like he tells her to go home and touch herself and like as I said like this is a shockingly like realistic way to masturbate because you're you're used to the like pristine like the hand down the underwear and just you know, kind of DJing on yourself kind of thing <laughs> with the eyes closed. But, like, this sort of, like, you know, rolling over onto her front and sort of, like, kind of humping her own hand kind of thing. Like, it's like, this you don't see this kind of thing that much in, in like, a mainstream product. Well, I don't know if I would call this mainstream, but, you know. Some... Uh, in, in, like, Oscar, Oscar Beatty kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, even, yeah, when, yeah. even when you're thinking of, like, I think of, I can't remember what the movie is, but the one of Aubrey Plaza. Oh, the, li- uh, the to-do list. Yes. yes, where it's just this kind of like very perfunctory kind of like just trying to figure out how to wank. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it kind of reminded me of we had that discussion with Brokeback where like they you said how they get into the mechanics of sex in a way that a lot of these films don't, and like it's not quite the same, but it was just like ah, this is I kind of appreciate this touch. Um, yeah, and obviously like there is the gratuitous panty shot of her butt like yeah. kind of rising off the bed, which 
potentially you could do without, but it obviously does all lead into, I think the heightenedness <laughs> of the way that she is masturbating leads into the shock reveal that this is the night after her mother has chopped all her fingernails off. Yes. And, oh, her mother's fell asleep on the chair in the same room, and she's gone for this, like, yeah. all-out physical performance whilst masturbating. Yeah, and then just, like, <gasps> and just, like, covering herself up. And, again, in this bedroom that is full of stuffed animals and everything. And, and yeah, as you said, like, the night before, she, like, literally drags her in just her underwear uh, and not even a bra to the bathroom to cut her nails against her will and everything. It's just, like, this is all... This is all bad stuff. This first sort of, I would call that like the end of that one. I think it is just staggeringly good. Very quickly after this, uh, we find out Beth's walked into traffic. Yes. <laughs> and and we don't know whether or not it was instigated by Tomar. by ne- by by Tomar's comments or by Nina kind of mm-hmm. replacing her. But Nina obviously feels very guilty. Yeah. Is this a suicide attempt? Is she being a sloppy drunk? Like, who knows? We we will never know because this is Nina's story, not Beth's. But. Yeah, and it, we start getting this kind of like sexual dance between Nina and Tomar. Is that like he is he hasn't fully taken advantage of her yet, but like there's this dual narrative purpose of Nina at home trying to find more privacy so she can experiment with herself. Like, yeah, where she she's finds, got like the wooden bar. <laughs> she's got the wooden bar, and then also the stuff in in the ballet where Tamar is like, "Would you fuck her?" To these yeah. other dancers, and they're very derisively like, "She's all very prim and popper," which leads us to this. The scene where Tomas seduces her. Yes, the the kind of after hours private lesson, like with this power dynamic or, or, of director and dancer, like not not okay. Um, just to to make that very clear, and then like yeah, literally again kissing her against her will, demanding she open her mouth, groping her, and then I read this as kind of a power play on his part, where like he likes to come across as this like oh I'm so fucking sexy, like look I've got you like so like desperate to fuck me and then I just walk away uh, and I like that given what happens at the end with him but yeah like this is a full on like assault that turns potentially consensual but yeah it's it's all classic it's like there is no consent at the start of this he doesn't no. get a permission obviously whether or not she is so desperate to kind of please him for this role or whatever mm-hmm. it is that power dynamic where it's like it doesn't matter whether or not she consents by the end. The fucked up thing is mm-hmm. that she's doing it because she thinks this is what you want and what you need for her to to do the role. And and obviously that's what kind of plays into the idea of the, the, the power dynamics behind an awful lot of like what the Me Too movement yeah. is talking about. Yeah. And like, you know, his his take of like, look, I seduced you, you're supposed to be seducing me. And it's like that this is some sort of fucked up lesson again and just yeah, it's all it's all bad stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and then, like, seeing evil Nina in the shadows, who steps out and it's Lily and, and, you know, all of this stuff. And, like, you know, Nina is completely unable to bond with her. Like, and, like, Lily is making a genuine attempt to, like, just be her friend and she just has to, like, get out of there. And, like, again, like, that she has these problems socially with, like, she has no friends. And, like, like, she can't handle this, like, offer of an olive branch from someone she's perceiving as a rival who probably doesn't give a shit. Like, she's transferred in from the other side of the country and she seems perfectly happy to just be in this ballet. Like, 
Yeah, um, and I, I like this is kind of Mila Kunis. Act two is all about Mila Kunis, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously we continue to get like these little bits of experimentation with the bathtub scene and and the blood and and fake Nina kind of showing up, but like it, everything kind of gets kicked off with Lily telling Tomar to kind of ease off of Nina, and Nina kicking off and kind of going like, "I didn't need you to do this for me." Uh, like, like you, you fucked it up. If like by get, by making him think that I'm weak, so Lily comes over to kind of give this another olive branch of like, let's go out, let's go get some food, let's go get some drinks, and <laughs> talk about this. Yes, and they unwind, <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, you've got the old man doing the kissy gestures at her on the way Who home. Is- He's like another character from Reckon for a Dream, or another reference to Reckon for a Dream. Ah, he is the creepy okay. guy on the train in that movie as well, gotcha, played by the same gotcha, actor. Gotcha. And her mum being all like, "Your dinner is ready." Like that. That they is weren't the... even cooking dinner. They were literally sat there having a conversation. No one was making any effort for cooking. Exactly, but just like that idea that, like, as an adult, somewhat, and with another adult there, like someone would be like, "Um, your dinner is ready," or whatever. <laughs> like, just a nightmare. But yeah, like she agrees to go out and. You know, Nina just, again, has this just complete opposite to Lily, who is, like, flirting with a waiter and then rebuffing him just just to do it, just, like, playing with her sexuality. Yeah, I, I love that, like, entire thing where she starts playing along and this guy's like, oh, yeah, this girl's into me. And then when he asks about... Have you got enough cheese? And she says, no, but you do. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, like I'm, I'm gonna fully, re- I'm going to fully rebuff you at this point. And, yeah. I mean, you can get into movies of, like, again, it's that subtle foodness where Lily is just like fully chomping down on this burger and yeah. Nina's kind of like skirting around the idea yes. of, <laughs> just of maybe doing it politely on it yes. yeah before the scene takes a turn and Lily's just like hey do you want to take some ecstasy <laughs> yeah and like she says no obviously and, and like she offers her a black top to change into um, and she puts it over the top. She doesn't even change it. It's just kind of over the top, and then she puts a jumper over that because you can see her little shoulder thing. And then when she comes out, she sees Lily is spiking her drink, but then she just goes along with it. And she's like, okay, fine. And uh, Bucky Barnes is here to, to flirt with them. But yeah, this... And they, they, they get high, they dance... Uh, go home together and you get this clever little there's a lot of stuff with mirrors in the movie obviously and there's this quite clever shot where like you can you can see Nina and then Lily kind of almost emerges seemingly emerges from her reflection because of how the camera is positioned it's just it's it's great stuff and yeah this the screaming match with her mother and then closing the door and fucking Lily and yeah like this this was the scene ever a lot of people were buzzing about because men are just so desperate for anything um <laughs> yeah i mean i this entire sequence of like the the letting the hair down is so good like mm-hmm. that cut from her ineffectually flirting with sebastian stan <laughs> where like everything she's saying is like no this is the wrong thing to say like oh do you want to get tickets to the ballet and louis just kind of like yeah, no these are not the guys you want to invite to the ballet like we're never <laughs> going to speak to these guys again <laughs> and sebastian sounds just like i'm so desperate to get fucked that like i will not along with this <laughs> um, and then you just hard cut from her like snuggling up to lily to just red and black and yeah and just, just clubbing yeah but yeah like th- this scene that you know got all the buzz but then like Turning it, turning even that into the psychological horror where like she looks down and it's herself, 
Yeah. And then Lily's and tattoos moving. And the tattoos moving. The the like start. The goose pimples are obviously supposed to be implying like feathers can grow from her skin yes. and. It's all so creepy, and it's such a hard turn, because, like, the implication now is that she's had sex with, like, four people in one night. Because, obviously, like, she comes home with it's just like, oh, I fucked both Tom and Jerry, and about to fuck Lily, and... There, there was also that dude in the bathroom where, like, yeah. she sort of came to and was like, hey, what? Huh? Huh. Bye. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's just this, like, this hypersexuality that she that she shows, and obviously it's all supposed to be this dismantling of her reality, and yeah. she's become the black swan, and mm-hmm. she's become more of this kind of thing. But, yeah, it's just an incredible turn, and Portman is so good at betraying all of it. And, like, I, I think they had to cut, a, like, some of the, the kind of, like, the actual sex to get the rating that they wanted, but mm-hmm. it's the little movements that are graphic, like... Mila Kunis kind of like wiping her mouth afterwards. Yes. <laughs> After this, obviously, this is the first time that Nina's gotten drunk or high or however you want to say it in presumably a very long time. She wakes up late for the ballet and, and runs to... And, runs Li- to and Lily is gone. <laughs> Lily is gone. Lily wasn't there. Lily is now dancing her dance for her and she is just like, what the fuck? How could you do this? How could you not wake me up? I, not even My mother didn't wake me up. You didn't wake me up. And now yeah, you're right. here dancing my dance. And that twist of, like, you know, unless your name's Tom and you have a dick or whatever. <laughs> and then, like, her mocking her of, like, oh, did you have a lezzy wet dream about me and everything? And, like, you know, I, and, and the it, response afterwards of, was I good is, is so good. Because it's like, yeah. she's so, I don't care that you had a sex dream about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's not, like, bullying her. She's just kind of, like, lightheartedly, like, hazing her a little bit kind of thing. Like, she's not, like, oh my god, I'm telling everyone. It's just sort of like, oh, that's fun oh, that's funny, and just, like, then they would move on. And, like, they should laugh about it, but instead Nina runs away, obviously, and, like... Yeah, and, and goes to Tamar and is just, like, she can't be my alternate. Yeah, anyone but her, and everything like that. And then, and then like, catching eye contact between Tamar and Lily and, and, and stuff like that, and, yeah, and then just going home and tossing all the stuffed animals away. Yeah, getting the physical therapy, or, or no, she's getting, like, fitted for the dress... And and like and she's, she's told she's lost weight. Yeah, and she does she do a little smile? I think she maybe yeah. does. But and then like seeing the hallucination of herself scratching at that that little scratch that's getting bigger and more like infected looking throughout the movie. Um, uh, and this is this is when I stopped taking notes because I just got completely <laughs> caught up because like after after this I was just like oh no the movie is just this full descent into madness now. Yeah, and, and like, so much of it is visual storytelling there's not an awful lot of kind of dialogue it's a lot of mm. the raw physicality of the dancing is yeah. barrel away to the climax yeah well we see we see you know she's she's staying late to practice the pianist is like fuck this i have a life bye and then she she sees tomar and lily having sex backstage and, and tomar she... becomes rothbart yes the, and the kind of the I don't, is it a raven? Is it? It's an owl-like wizard, apparently. <laughs> yes, I read the entire plot description of of Swan Lake, and also, of course, Lily becomes Nina, and it's like, did this happen at all? Like, did Lily and Tama actually have sex, or is the entire and and she just you know, saw extra parts of it, or did the entire thing not happen? Given she has just massively hallucinated an entire encounter with herself. And she's about to hallucinate a heck of a lot more in a minute. But yeah, just these questions of like that Nina is an unreliable narrator of this story. You know, like you start to question how much of any of this is actually legit. And 
yeah, and then visiting Beth in the hospital in this scene that's difficult to look at. <laughs> yeah, like she she wants to return the items that she's stolen from her because like she now finally understands what it means to have this this person try and steal your role. And mm-hmm. like Beth is not aware that Nina was actually trying to steal her role or trying to like duplicate her. Mm. And so Nina's come like completely unhinged and the scene is obviously like completely up to interpretation because Beth picks up the knife that they use to kind of like prepare the shoes and just stabs her face multiple times. Yes. And then Nina runs away and then finds herself holding the, the bloody knife and you wonder whether or not she'd done it, whether or not this has actually happened or whether or not like yeah. that's the thing is like no one brings up the fact that Beth has been maimed or murdered at the at the ballet after this. So exactly. it's like but... did it happen? Do people just not know yet? Like, did she go and stab an unconscious person? Was she awake? Did any of this conversation happen? Did it, did she even go to the hospital? Like, we don't know. And I actually, like, um, earlier on when she goes to visit her, she sees, like, the wounds. And obviously she's horrified on a level of, like, oh, God, she's so hurt. But then I also had that second reading of, like, Nina seems to be, like, very repulsed by physical imperfection. Mm. and like particularly like cuts and wounds and stuff like that and like i yeah i read it that way and then like yeah the 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 frantic like stabbing scene and then going home and like calling her mum mummy after you know like she'd been kind of starting to rebel against this like overly motherly behavior and then to call her mummy like that and then that yeah we we mentioned it earlier the the paintings sort of coming to life and she starts destroying them and yeah, we get the full-on eyes turning red, hallucinating black feathers. Yeah, she pulls it from the scratch. Yes, yes. And, and like, you're supposed to start wondering at this point, like, oh, maybe she's becoming a swan for some reason. <laughs> of, course, right, of course. Right down to, like, one of the few kind of, like, pure special effects shots in the movie where her knees snap backwards. Yeah, her legs start bowing. Yeah, like, bending the wrong way like a bird's, and then she collapses and... Yeah, it's it's creepy shit, and like whenever she does, and in a minute when she sees her feet and like imagines them starting to web or whatever, it's it's all really creepy and subtly actually really good special effects. I think mm. like it, I don't think it's like aged poorly at all. No, I think um, I think that's the that's the benefit of it being such a cheap movie is that like you can't rely on the special effects, and so when you do, like you kind of go like right, we need to make sure that this fucking works mm-hmm. and blends in with the kind of visual palette of the movie yeah um but yeah this is like the movie is just full-on a fever dream at this point because yeah. pretty much everyone that you see like after her waking up and going to the ballet like her mother tries to keep her in the house she's like snapped the doorknob off the door and she's like you're unwell i've called them and said that you're not going to be able to make it tonight yeah to do the dance and nina just like crushes her mother's hand which she'd like slammed in the door the night before <laughs> get gets the doorknob and just storms off and yeah but this this was the scene where i was like maybe her mother isn't being like overly protective here because like she says you were scratching yourself all night and she's put her in these myths and it's like maybe that's not true maybe she's lying to her to try and control her but like that could conceivably be very true because we never see her doing it except for the hallucination but like yeah, like the, this information being offered that she essentially, like while she was asleep, was desperately scratching at this wound or whatever. There is clearly something going on here that, like, regardless of how you feel about her, like stepping in and potentially robbing her of this role, like 
her daughter is very clearly having an episode and like needs some help. But... Yeah, she is. She is trying to help her, but yeah. like she's obviously so focused on this role and this quote unquote perfection that she yeah. just sprints needs... to opening night and insists on night. going on. Yeah. yeah, I I love this. Like it's it's kind of the last, the only moment of Lily actually kind of fitting into the role of being someone who wants to steal the role mm-hmm. of her very annoyedly going like you told me that she wasn't going to be here as as Nina storms into the yeah. into her dressing room because like everything else before this it's kind of been like Lily's been friendly she hasn't exact like yeah you could read it all as being um, fake fake nice to undermine her yeah yeah but this is the first moment of like kind of like oh god why are you here and I read it more as like she is legitimately like someone who is nice and peppy and stuff like that, and has been told you're going to get your opportunity on opening night to do this performance, yeah. and then the person who you're replacing shows up. Yeah, and... I can see why that would be annoying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then like you know arguing with Tamara about it, and her just sort of very pointedly, very assertively saying, "Do you really need another controversy?" And then he's like fuck yeah, you're the black swan. <laughs> and, like, yeah, this this transformation, she has been so meek and so, like, afraid to stand up for herself and then sort of only half-willingly going through that second act with the, the taking the drugs and everything. But now she's arrived at this point where she's like, no, fuck it, I am fighting for, for things that I feel I am owed and I am going to put my foot down and I'm going to start being a little bit manipulative. And, uh, yeah, she hallucinates the swan feet a little bit and... Yeah, and we and we get like the 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 last vestiges of her as the white swan. Yeah, and um, and that that she was perfect as the white swan for most of the movie and just couldn't get the black swan right. And then it's the white swan where she has this shaky first act and and like is hallucinating and gets dropped on her knee and yeah, I I, I really love that as as a thematic thing. It's like she's worked so hard at becoming a good black swan, that she's kind of lost her touch as the white swan. Yeah, and like it's hard to say whether or not the fuck it was from her or from the person who, who lifts her up. Mm. Like Both of them are very angry at each other, as you would understandably yeah. be. Tomar starts swearing in French and like, <laughs> storming around, which I think is a nice touch. And she's like, like, it wasn't my fault. But then the dude is like, what the fuck, to her. And stuff yeah. like that. And um, she had been and- hallucinating just before. and She sees um, Lily with the... Is it the prince, or is it it's the prince because it's the yeah. prince who lifts her up and so she sees Lily grab the prince's like crotch yeah. before they come on and obviously like it's just leading to this idea of like Lily's trying to sabotage me she's convinced the prince to drop me or something I yeah just... yeah yeah and also like she, she's muscling in on 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 Tamar she's muscling in on like the guy I'm supposed to theatrically be with like yeah and and, and hallucinating that the chorus girls are all herself and yeah all, all this stuff and, and you see uh, the, this Rothbart like creature just wandering around backstage like hey <laughs> in his costume and like it actually does take on some kind of odd humorous moments mm. in, uh, while getting like incredibly dark but I guess it's all just supposed to be absurd and everything. Uh, like like the this, end of In Bruges, almost. Yeah, like. this feels like one of those things where this is not helping her hallucinations, is being in this like heightened ballet world of everyone in costume, and mm. it's just kind of like leading her more easily to imagine all of these things. Speaking of things that she's imagining... Oh, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, walking uh, in and finding Lily putting on the black swan makeup. 
and then them getting in a in a verbal and then physical fight and we have this again the swan neck is mm. kind of ridiculous and funny in that like oh she can't strangle her because her neck is growing long <laughs> and then yeah the broken mirror and stabbing her to death with it and like oh shit you think you get it you think you get what this story is and they will twist it one last time in a minute but like yeah just like that she has reached this height of darkness almost as she tries yeah like she, she, as she stabs goes like i'm the black swan and it's this moment of like her becoming both at once or like because she doesn't it's not that she kills the white swan side of her no because lily is dressed as, as the black swan it's this kind of like consumption of like both of them and it's like i will embody both of them yeah. and she drags Lily's corpse into the <laughs> cupboard, and then we get the best answer in the movie. Oh my god! That, can I just say, like the the when she emerges in that makeup, like the non hallucinated makeup, and like that that looks straight into camera kind of yeah. thing, staggering. Like what <laughs> costume design, what dancing, like is occurring here? Like it, it's great, it's fantastic, and like they put this in every trailer. I feel like, and I kind of wish I'd never seen it before, because. Yeah, just amazing to see. And, like, this idea that, like, committing a murder allows her to finally perform the perfect black swan. And, like, better than the white swan, she gets, like, standing ovation and, like, is encouraged to go back out to have flowers thrown like, at yeah, her. Like, at the end of, like, act two. Yeah. Like, this, isn't even, this isn't even, like, the, finale, the end of the yeah. show with everyone doing This is just, like, you have done a sp- so spectacular a job that you have had to go out for a encore at In the, the end middle of, of the act. show, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then, then like, fiercely kissing Tamar while on her tiptoes. And I really liked this moment from Cassell where, like, he looks really, like, flustered after being kind of this sultry prick who's always in control of every sexual situation. And then that she would, like, kiss him like that. He's almost like, ooh, <laughs> wow. And, like, yeah. yeah. again, it's, it's all part of that realisation, like, no, she is the perfect black swan. And, yeah. Uh, it, again, like... There is so little plot at this point. It's just kind of like knocking over dominoes in some ways. Yeah. And, well, it's and kind of visual. just like the ballet and the story are now just in perfect sync. Almost mm. our final twist is Nina going back to her dressing room and kind of like putting on the white swan makeup, and then it's a knock at the door, and it's Lily. She's not dead. Nope. Even though she's like put a towel there to like mop up the blood that she's imagining, and the and... mirror is broken on the floor, very crucially. Yeah, and. Was. And I, I like this, is that moment of Lily going like, wow, that was so good. Like, I... I, I had my doubts, kind of... but you blew me away, yeah. <laughs> and and then we get the revelation that whether or not Nina, like, ran into the mirror and, like, just got glass into her, or, like, she literally stabbed herself as I, part of the self-harm I idea. Go, I go with that one. Like, you fucked up, you idiot. Stab self. Like... But like under this guise of a of an imagined blow up or whatever. But you know maybe it's actually more fitting that like in the midst of the hallucination she accidentally did that. But yeah, like pulling the shard of glass out of her and which obviously like causes the blood to start to spread more and yeah. almost puts this like ticking clock on like how long she's got left. Like if mm-hmm. she'd left it in, chances are we'd have like stemmed the bleeding or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, and we get the the final dance that we've seen them rehearsing earlier on in the movie of her having to do this suicide at the climax of, of yeah. Swan Lake. Is and like the blood is... getting huge as she gets like right up on her toes for that last bit, and it's like Jesus, somebody surely is noticing <laughs> at this point. Yeah, and then her her drop onto the mattress, and yeah. 
everyone coming over to congratulate her and say what a tremendous job she's done, including Tamar finally calling her his little princess, which just, Lily said earlier would be like, oh, he's going to call you that soon. Like exactly. That's not just for Beth, that's for all the women he kind of like it's just his performative bullshit like this is oh you're special you're special actually you're old now you you're special you're special <laughs> exactly yeah, and yeah. The, the blood is growing and everyone starts noticing and Tamar calls for the hospital or calls for the ambulance to come over and Nina whispers in his ear and goes like I felt it what perfect I was perfect and yeah. then that like hazy fade out yeah. similar to the wrestler but yeah and, like, it, I love, like, the applause and, like, they're literally chanting her name, giving way to some sort of more, like, haunting sounds, and then ultimately to the piano score, which, like, that goes all over the place as well, and, like, the white credits turn black, and, yeah, just, yeah. I could see a version where she deliberately jumps the other way onto Not A Mattress or something mm. like that, and, like, literally kills herself to, to achieve this perfection or whatever. Yeah, because obviously, like, that is... Um... The whole idea behind this is like some people think she dies, some people don't think she does, and mm. Aronofsky very pointedly made them have the blood pack be quite low mm-hmm. on on Portman, so it's kind of down towards her genitals, yes. so that it was like her having a period and the idea of like fully reaching womanhood at this point, and yes. it's what led Portman to kind of go like, oh, I don't think Nina dies. I think this is like her full on transformation. transformation. Yeah, yeah, and like the Black Swan as a metaphor for like you know. A sexualized adult or whatever versus the white swan of of pristine childhood and yeah that she has finally learned to embody both but like even if she lives like surely she's out of night two and possibly the whole thing yeah um, that's the thing it's like Lily would have to take over for a little bit but the thing is yeah. think of how many people are going to go see this show where like you kind of go like oh yeah the first night the lead actress was so fucking incredible yeah. and then it turned out that she was heavily bleeding throughout the entirety of the show <laughs> yeah um, like just, that's a story yeah just magnificent like he cr- like crushed it start to finish so good, such a great performance from Portman. I think there would have been a riot if she didn't win Best Actress. Um, yeah, I mean, and... I, I, I can't think of... You, you said he was up against her, and like, all those performances are varying levels of good, but this is such a committed performance. I think like, even it says like she swept everything. Yeah, like she she won everything with good reason, and... Yeah, yeah. It is, it is the legacy of the movie, is that it's this... And whether or not you think the movie is just this central performance from Portman, or whether or not you think the other elements come together, I think I think as a piece of technical filmmaking, it's also incredibly impressive. Like the the music, the the cinematography, like the the costume design, the color palettes, like all of it, the editing, yeah. So yeah, good. I, it, I I love both of these movies. I do think it's like not to say that I don't like Noah and Mother, but I do think that Aronofsky kind of reached this new level of an aesthetic choice it's, um in this like with the wrestler and black swan that i'm kind of sad he reverted back to the these bigger kind of more special effects driven kind of things and that's not to say mother yeah. isn't a similar idea behind it but mm. i do miss this kind of stripped down rule thing from it's, him it's kind of art house film writ large kind of thing like mm. it's use... someone with big ideas having to work within this like very tiny budget yeah and this idea that like restraint can actually be a can be a positive or whatever it can be a strength and the limitations of the budget leading to them being more creative and stuff yeah, yeah it, excellent excellent stuff <laughs> well i'm glad that you enjoyed this more on your rewatch um, yeah but yeah. 
Where does that leave us for next, though, Matt? Uh, yeah, we'll see if you can do it again, because I don't like Drive very much. Um, I kind of rebel against the... <sighs> Just everyone was wearing those fucking jackets <laughs> and listening to that goddamn soundtrack. The soundtrack um, is so good. I think I, I know the soundtrack on my, like, album of the year lists for that year. I know it is, but I was just like, I've always just been like, why are people so obsessed with this movie? That I, to me, is fine. And I think it's stylish as hell and that's it. And maybe that is what it is, but we will explore that next week um, and we'll see if you can change my mind twice. You're on a good roll this year. Like, you changed my mind on the Raid 2 versus the Raid 1. Like, you changed my mind on this. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll see how deep we can go with this. Uh, well, this is, this is going to be the true test, because I feel like this is a very... Drive is a very Marmite movie, but it is one <laughs> that we will dive into next week. It's also a lot less plotty. Like, it'll just be kind of like... And then there's, like, an extended sequence where we just listen to a song for five minutes. Yes, while a man murders somebody. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, this has been there will be movies matt oh god i'm not ready no go on hit me <laughs> can you can you confirm to me whether or not there will indeed be movies no there will be just extended music videos and a surprisingly good brian cranston performance before he became brian cranston uh, thank you bye everyone